Good morning, everyone. I have no idea how I'm going to top that up. Um, that was incredible. Let's give it up for Ellie Kelly one more time. That was awesome. That was awesome. I couldn't imagine doing that. When I was Ellie's cage, age, I was a sheep in the, the, the Christmas story for my preschool, and I uh, decided to raise my leg when I was up on stage and acting like I was peeing the whole time. So um, that, in comparison to me, Ellie Kelly is 10 times better as a kindergartner than I ever could imagine. So that's awesome. Um, today we are continuing, and we're actually finishing up our series Make your own mistakes, don't make mine. With today's main theme being family dysfunction needs to end with you. So today, we are going to be focusing on the story of Solomon and how uh, his rule over Israel kind of led to this dysfunction of his family for generations. So uh, if you want to open up to 1 Kings, there's a lot of scripture that we're going to read because Dave decided to give me the long story of Solomon, and he took all the easy ones. Um, so if you want to just open up to 1 Kings, we're going to be jumping around and looking at the story of Solomon uh, for a little bit, um, and then we're going to get into how we as Christians can end the dysfunction of our family that has been passed down for us through generations. And so Solomon was a successful ruler. He had wisdom that he asked for God, and he used it for great power. He, uh, a little bit of history, he set up the sophisticated government of Israel. Uh, he brought them international power. He made them a very important part of the trade route. Um, all of these things. He built the temple uh, that his father wanted to build for God, and he gave it to God. Uh, we're going to jump right into 1 Kings 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. It says, When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord in the royal palace and achieved all that he had desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time. As he appeared to him at Gibeon, the Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple, which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprighteousness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and my laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or a descendant of you turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated my name for. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all people. This temple will be a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple People will answer, because they have forsaken their Lord God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt, and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. So, Solomon has a pretty good rule up to this point. He's smart, he uses his wisdom for good, for the glory of his, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of God, and it's great. And it'd be awesome if that's where the story ended, because that's exactly what God wanted him to do. But oftentimes... As we see in the Old Testament, and we see nowadays, we tend to screw things up when we get, when we, when we get power, when we get what we want. Um, and so Solomon eventually let the power go to his head, let the power that he had over his earthly objects go to his, go to his head. So we're going to jump forward a little bit to 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 through 13. 
It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, who was his wife. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told Israel, Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their god. So we see right here, I'm going to read a little bit more, but we see right here, he's doing the exact thing God told him not to. There's a reason we don't marry these people. They will pull you astray from me, and you promised me that you wouldn't walk astray with me, or there will be destruction. And so we pick up in 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep this Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So Solomon had now broken this covenant that he'd made with God. He followed gods uh, and goddesses, burned incense, built temples for them, built sacrifices for them, um, for not the one and only God who had come to him twice and spoke to him and said, you cannot do this or bad things will come. And so his son eventually, his name is Rehoboam, and we're going to read about him in a little bit, uh, takes over the kingdom, and he is dealt with a problem right away. He has to deal with a problem right away. And so he goes to the council of elders who advised his father, Solomon, um, and the question from his, his people in his kingdom, um, they asked him, them, Rehoboam, to lighten the workload. And so his elders said, if you lighten the workload now, they'll be your servants forever, so you should lighten the workload now. And then he decided to go to what they call young men in Scripture, um, probably his best friends, people he grew up with, and they're like, no, you should really make their yoke heavier. You should make them work harder. Look how hard they work for your father. Imagine how much harder they'll work for you. And so we pick up in First Kings chapter 12, verses 12 through 24. It says, three days later, after Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given to him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy, I will make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahish the Shilonite, which is one of Solomon's subordinates. When all of Israel saw that king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were leaving in the town, sorry, 
But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adornium. I love Old Testament names. They're so fun to say. Um, who was in charge of forced labor, but all of Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So when the Israelites had heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all of Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered all able young men to go to war against Israel and regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, said to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of God and went home again as the Lord had ordered. So the kingdom splitting, we read it right here, was the word of God because of the sin of Solomon. And so because of the sin of Solomon, his son, the next king, has to deal with all of his problems. Oftentimes, when it comes to us being sinners and we sin, we think it really only affects us in our relationship with God, which it does drastically, but it affects our children. It'll affect our children's children. It might affect our spouse. It might affect our friends. It might even affect our whole church as one. I mean, the sins of one man of Solomon split up an entire kingdom and um, destroyed it. The kingdom of Israel was was split in two for a little while, and all the leaders of the north were evil, and all the leaders of the south were less evil, but still evil. Um, and both kingdoms eventually fall to the Assyrians, and then the Assyrians fall, history lesson, to the Babylonians, and then they're pretty much back in slavery like they were in Egypt for a few hundred years. And so this all unfolds because of the sin of one man, of Solomon, because he does not follow the decree he made with God himself. So, there's good news, though. I come from a family line of dysfunction, and I'm going to talk about that a whole lot today uh, because it's firsthand for me. And some of you all do, too. Um, But there's still hope for you to end the dysfunctional family cycle. So, the person in this family line is Jesus. He's the one who comes along and defeats this family cycle. Jesus is related to Solomon and David way, way back. Um, And just like it's prophesied, David is going to rule over, David's lineage, excuse me, is going to rule over Israel forever. And Jesus comes from this lineage. And so my father, many of you all know him, he has a brother, my uncle. They are, they're they're two two siblings, that's it. There's only two of them. Um, Their father was an alcoholic and abusive, and their mother was abusive. And I think his grandfather was an alcoholic and his great-grandfather was an alcoholic. So we have alcoholism, addiction, abuse that runs through our family. And my uncle and my father are the ones who decided to end the line with them. And so they've set us up for success so far. Um, There might be some slip-ups through genealogy and just the genes that were passed down, and I'm going to talk about that. Many of you all know I have a brother who's uh, was an alcoholic, but has been sober for eight years now, and now is working in ministry. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. I have a, uh, a cousin, similar story. Um, but my father and my uncle decided to end the dysfunction. They went about it two separate ways, but they both did it somewhat through the lens of Christ. 
And so my first point is this, that we make the decision to defeat the family cycle. Like I mentioned, my dad and my brother had abusive parents, an alcoholic father, an alcoholic grandfather, an alcoholic great-grandfather. They are better off than everyone else in their family. I'm friends with some of them on Facebook, and the ones who did not come to Christ, the ones who did not decide to end the dysfunction for themselves, kids are out of control, their lives are out of control, they have no control over anything that they do. It's all determined by what their needs are right now. So being able to be the son of a man who decided to end the dysfunction has been an absolute blessing for me. And for me, I've found three ways to defeat the family cycle. You might think of more, you might know more, but for me, through my family, through my lens, I found these three ways to defeat the family cycle. And this is the first one. We can't overvalue ourselves. So our selfishness does not come first. This was very difficult for me to learn. Um, Many of you all know I played soccer growing up. I played all four of the main sports. I played football, basketball, baseball, and soccer until I was in about seventh grade and I decided just to stick with soccer. But in most sports, you're somewhat selfish for yourself. In soccer, we are told constantly, even though I was a goalkeeper, I heard this constantly, you need to be ruthless in front of goal. You have to be selfish every once in a while, more often than not, because if you aren't selfish, your team probably won't score goals, and then you probably won't win, because I don't think you can win soccer without scoring goals. Um, So I heard this my entire life. You have to be somewhat selfish. You have to be somewhat selfish. And there's a little bit of truth in that, but let's pick up in Mark 12, uh, 28 through 31. This is what Jesus says about it's the greatest commandment. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So mental illness is something that is also passed along in my line. So we struggle with loving ourselves. And a big part of this is loving your neighbor as yourselves. So we need to love ourselves eventually. Um, I've struggled with mental illness, depression. There's been depressive episodes that have lasted days, weeks, months. Um, There have been suicidal thoughts in my head. All of it. It's been through my family for generations, this, this mental illness. But I realized two things. First one, it's not me against the world. It's me and the creator of the world against the evil of this world. Number two is oftentimes these thoughts come from my selfish point of view. It's all about me. It's all about my earthly wants. It's all about my earthly desires. But we need to realize that our creator loves us just as much as he loves everyone else here. Even if we've sinned, as long as we keep coming back to him and begging him for repentance, God loves us so much. And we read it in John 3.16. He loves us so much he sent his one and only son to die for us on a cross, to defeat death so we can have eternity in heaven for, with him forever. So we need to realize how much God loves us. Then we need to take the love we have for our, ourselves and love our neighbors. Because one of the best ways to create disciples, which is another command Jesus gives us, is go out to all nations and create disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We need to go create disciples, and we can do that by loving our neighbors. This is my favorite time of year, especially election time, because, um, let's see, August, September, October, and November, you see all those political signs everywhere? There's everywhere. The commercials, I don't even know who half these people are, going to be honest with you. I've never heard of these people until this month. But imagine if you see all those political signs out there, 
And that was the number of disciples you went out and made, rather than letting the earthly desires of politics get in your way. Now, I'm not saying politics is bad. There's a need for morality in politics. But we focus so much so often on the earthly desires, our earthly wants. We just need to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples because God just wants us in heaven with him. He loves us so much that he just wants us in heaven with him. He doesn't want us to live in hell forever. An eternity in hell is miserable. He wants us in heaven with him. The second one I've noticed is that sometimes you will have to separate from your family. Like I said, I've been blessed to have a father who's decided to end the dysfunction, a mother who supports me. I'm the youngest of five. They all support me in ministry. My other brother is now in ministry kind of because of me, because I've convinced them to. Um, he wanted to go into ministry when he, he's eight years older than me. He wanted to go into ministry when he first went to college and then fell down the path of addiction and came out of that. And with me stepping into ministry and being there to support him and loving on him, he's now in ministry and we get to do ministry together. Um, I've had parents who are role models to me. They were a pain in my butt from ages five to, how old am I? 23, five to 23, but I still love them. Um, and they, they are a part of a church plant over in the Hamburg area, and they now come to me and ask me church advice. And it's the greatest feeling in the world to know that I have loving parents who love me so much that they're willing to come and take my advice for it. But not all of us are that lucky. Some of us are in families who will push the dysfunction, will push, you know, they might be addicted to stuff, and we need to step away from our family. Uh, they might cause problems regularly, whether it's drama or gossip. Uh, Luke, tw- Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. I love this. It says, I have come to bring fire on earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and what a constraint I am under until it's completed. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So everything isn't necessarily an argument needing needing to be argued. There are things that are in our Christian beliefs and our Christian values that we call non-essentials that maybe your family members not necessarily believe, but you don't necessarily need to go to argument over them. But there are other things that you need to go to war against. Um, And a family who's a part of the dysfunctional cycle that has been passed down to them is one of those things we need to fight against. There was someone in the youth group when I was here in the youth group who I absolutely love, whose family um, didn't believe in Christ, but she firmly believed, and she had to step away because every time she went back to that cycle, everything fell apart, and her faith got weaker. Now, you don't need to not love them because we, like we read before, are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, but we need to be able to step away. So my brother is an alcoholic, sober for seven and a half years. Um, The first few years, uh, we didn't drink any alcohol around him. We didn't even have a drop of alcohol in the house because we knew what could happen if he even saw, smelled, or tasted, or whatever, smelled it in the humid air of Kentucky. Um, But we knew what would happen, so we had to be the family to end the dysfunction, because alcoholism gets through, um, and so we've had to deal with that. And now, as kind of time has gone on, we do drink a little bit around him, but we know the signs of when he's starting to get uncomfortable when he doesn't want to be necessarily around us anymore because of 
uh, because of us drinking. And so we put them a wall away. We hide them all away, and we put them wherever we put them, and we don't even talk about it. We just sit down and drink some water and hang out with him because we love him, because we don't want to see him uh, be an alcoholic anymore. Those years, I was a sophomore and junior in high school when he was an alcoholic. I played in the state championship, and he had to get special permission to step out of the rehab uh, uh, place so he could come watch me in the state championship. And seeing my brother scrawny and miserable and pretty much dying because he had a liver infection because of how much alcohol he drank was miserable. We don't ever want to see that again. So we decided to be the family who doesn't allow dysfunction to continue through us. And the third one is this. We have to follow his commands. You reap what you sow. Galatians 6, 7 through 9 says this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reap what he sows. Whoever sows to pleasure their flesh from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give it up. So what we put in is what we get out. I've heard that in my entire life. What you put in is what you get out. Playing sports growing up, the amount of effort you put in is what you'll get out. If you want to play on the best team, you've got to put in all the effort. If you don't really care and you're just there for fun, then don't put in a bunch of effort. Just be there for fun. Um, and it's true for what God calls us. He calls us to follow his commandments. He might call us to personal callings, but we have to follow them. And we have to remember when we sin to come back and ask for, for forgiveness because we are going to sin. I tell the youth group this all the time. We are stupid sheep. So if you know anything about sheep, sheep, if they don't have a person who will herd them around, will go to the sound of running water and oftentimes will fall in and drown because their wool will get soaking wet and full of water. And we, without our shepherd of Jesus, will oftentimes just go to what pleases us, goes to the sinful pleasings, because we love instant gratification, because we live in a microwave society where we have to have things now. We pay extra money on Amazon so I can get whatever I want tomorrow rather than four days, because that four days is really a big deal. But we see it over and over again. If we don't come to God and we seek the pleasures of our sin or of our sinful self, we will live in eternity in hell. We need to come back on our knees in front of the foot of the cross begging for forgiveness because it's one of it's what God asks us to do because we are sinful people. So I'm going to use the story of my brother again. Um, he is now in ministry. He's been in ministry for almost a year now. Um, and because he's worked so hard at recovering from alcoholism, um, he now has a wife, three kids, a steady job where he, love, he loves what he does. I get to work with him. We get to have fun being siblings together. Some of you all who grew, uh, we grew up with are probably terrified of thinking of me and Hayden doing anything youth ministry related together. Um, and it's fun and dangerous, I will say that, but a safe dangerous. My cousin is the same way. His name is Willie. He's the second oldest. Uh, my, my uncle and aunt have four kids. He's the second oldest. Um, he became an alcoholic too a few years after Hayden did, and he saw Hayden come through recovery. But he also decided to step up and take recovery seriously. And now he has a job that he absolutely loves and a wife and kids that he absolutely loves because he's put in the effort here on earth to reap the benefits that God has blessed him with. And so all three of these things I found consistent in, in Jesus. He fulfills all of these things. 
Because we can't forget that Jesus came from this dysfunctional line of David and Solomon and Rehoboam who destroyed the kingdom of Israel. So the first one is we can't overvalue ourselves. This one's pretty easy. Jesus came to earth to die for our sins, to live a perfect life, die on a cross, a very, very painful death, and defeat death and rise three days later. The second one, he's separated from his family. So I'm going to use the term family loosely here. He was a Jew. He was, he was a Jew, um, and he was born into Judaism. And he came here to save the Jews first, just like Scripture says, and then the Gentiles, not just the Jews. So the Jews were looking for someone when it came to Jesus who was a political powerhouse, um, and he was the opposite of that. He was just a carpenter. Vast difference between a Pharisee and a carpenter. And the Jewish Pharisees threatened Jesus, questioned every single one of his teachings, even though he knew the Jewish word better than most Pharisees because he studied it. And he even died on a cross for us. They even killed him. The third one, he followed God's commandments. He fulfilled the prophecies that were given to us in Scripture. He came down here again. God commanded him to live a perfect life and die on a cross for all of us to live in eternity in heaven. So my question for you all, Catalyst, is what are you going to be for your next generation? Are you going to step up and end the dysfunction of your family, or are you going to let it slip through to the next generation and put it off on your kids and then your kids' kids? Proverbs 22.6 says this, Start, off the way, start children off the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. I've been dealt a, a decent hand, not great hand. My fiance, same thing. We have addiction that runs through our uh, genealogy for, 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 for generations. Um, so we have to be able to set up our kids for success. Because if they do fall into it, like my brother being the perfect example, if they do fall into it, we have to be there to lift them up not be a part of the dysfunction, not be the reason they fell into the dysfunction of our family, but be there to lift them up and protect them and raise them up correctly from their addiction, their dysfunction, whatever it, whatever it may be that comes through. Um, so please, set up your next generation for success over your family's dysfunction. Um, if you take anything away from this morning, please do not forget the main thing, that the family dysfunction needs to end with you do not put it off on the next generation or the next generation. You'll have a great rest of your all week. You'll have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. God bless. I hope to see you all next week.